this morning. How are you doing? Good? Good? Good. It's been one of those weird mornings when you start out. But God is good, and he is here. And we are in his presence, and we are thankful to be in his presence. Are we not? Yes, we are. Let me just answer that one for you. We are thankful to be in the presence of our God this morning. I hope that you will wake up as we get further along in this message. I'm sure I will stir you up a little bit. I want to start out with a, with a couple questions here. Is Calvary, church, is Calvary Church a welcoming church to everyone? Is Calvary Church a place where no matter what color you are, no matter the social status you are, no matter the dress, no matter how clean you are, no matter where you live, no matter your politics, no matter what, you are welcome here. Good answer, Dan. So when someone walks through the door of our assembly of God's people, do we welcome them the same, rich or poor? And have you personally ever been guilty of discrimination or partiality against you of any kind, especially against the poor? Have you yourselves ever been guilty of the sin of partiality yourself? So before you think I'm here to just beat you up this morning, I, I want you to say, just like what Dan said, that I want, I want to say that for the most part, I would say that our church is a welcoming church. And most of the time, we have a very diverse culture in our church, very ethnically diverse, socially and economically diverse. I believe we show a cross-section uh, cross of, our, of our town. Some of that has to do with where our church is located, but also where we minister to. So I'm not here to completely beat you up. I just want you to know that. But I also want to say that, that we need to do better. We can always improve on where we're at. We can't be satisfied just with the status quo. We must strive to be better, not only as a church body, but also as individuals. We must be better because we carry the hope of Christ with us. We are the light of the world. We must carry ourselves in the light of how our Savior, our Savior and Lord carries himself, sharing the good news of the kingdom of God wherever he went. Partiality is not to be tolerated. It is a sin. And in our passage this morning, James is speaking to his audience, and thus to us, about this very matter. By the words he speaks, it's easy to see that he was writing to a group of people who were guilty of the sin of partiality. Now some of us here, we might be thinking, gosh, I didn't even know there was a sin of partiality. What is that? And I say to you that, <laughs> well, you need to read your Bible a little bit more often. But, is we're here now in the book of James, we're going to look through it, and today when you leave, you'll know exactly what the sin of partiality is. In our passage, we're going to see four basic things. And the first thing we're going to see is the command to not practice the partiality, the sin of partiality or bias. And two, we're going to see that James is going to give us an example of what this partiality looks like. 
And then three, James calls us to end partiality. And four, he challenges us as a church in how we should respond. So let's read our passage this morning, which you will find in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through verse 13. James 2, starting in verse 1 through verse 13. Let's read it together. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing, shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by this law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you again, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this message. It's, it's a tough message, but Lord, we know that you are a loving God, and you will help us to see what it is that you have to say to each of us, and as a church as a whole, as to how we end a sin of partiality. And, and if we're not guilty of these sins, even in our own lives, Lord, we pray that you will help us to be better, to see people for how you see them, to look into the heart of a person and not judge by their outward appearance. Father, I pray that your spirit would guide my words this morning and open our hearts and our minds to hear what it is that you have to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So in verse 1 is our first point. James gives us the command to not discriminate, to not show favoritism, to one group of people over another. In verse 1 he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Remember that James is the half-brother of Jesus and he is a leader in the Jerusalem church among Christian Jews. So he has authority. He has authority as we saw in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council. But he has also most likely witnessed this behavior of partiality, and it was a big enough issue for him to have to write an extensive passage about it. It had to be addressed. James felt strongly enough that he made this the first item 
that he details in his letter that we have to look at. It's an imperative. It's a command to end the practice of partiality. He starts out first by addressing his audience, his brothers and sisters in the Lord, lovingly, like a shepherd. He calls them my brothers, my sisters. He didn't say you over there, nameless, faithless, faceless person. He recognizes their value in Christ, and it indicates in his attitude of love, the love of a shepherd. Because a good shepherd does four things. He knows his people. He feeds his people. He leads his people. And he protects his people. In this case, James is reflecting all four of these in this passage. He knows the behavior of their favoritism. And so he feeds them the truth of God's word. And then he leads them out of the darkness and sin and into the light. And then he protects the people from continuing on in the sin of partiality. But what does he mean by partiality? What does that mean? And the word simply means, as we would think it means, to show favoritism or preferential treatment for one group of people over another. Now James' audience, again, is Jewish Christians who were forcibly dispersed from Jerusalem. They understood what he was talking about. They themselves probably faced discrimination in their own lives. So they had no business participating in partiality themselves. Favoritism is not an acceptable behavior for those of us as Christ-following Christians. We are not to practice our faith in the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, with an attitude that one group of people are more highly favored than another. God's word prohibits it. It is not his will. That's why it's such a big deal. James, as one who knew the Jewish law, is referring to Leviticus 19.15. Leviticus 19.15, the book that none of us like to read in our reading plan. But there is so much great stuff in the book of Leviticus. Study that book. Read that book. Most of the, well, not most, but a lot of the things in the New Testament come from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. In the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans 2.11, For God shows no partiality when it comes to sinners. It is the will of God to not be a people who are partial of one over the other. That first verse lays the groundwork for the whole thing by giving us the command to end the sin of partiality. And as we look into our next section here, verses 2 through 4, James gives us the example of what he is talking about. Let's read starting in verse 2. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or you sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves 
and become judges with evil thoughts? James' example describes blatant partiality with a story of favoritism shown to another person based on their overall outward appearance, based on what a person is actually just wearing. Judgments about them are made. We're guilty of this as well. Clothing for the one gives the impression that this person is living in a wealthy, high society lifestyle. Possibly someone, <clears throat> excuse me, who, uh, who's a political partisan. Someone that would be good for them to cozy up to. You can see that by the wearing of the gold ring, which is a sign that they were important. Maybe it was even a person who was a leader in industry. James doesn't really get specific because it's an example. But certainly, this person is a person of influence that it would be helpful if we were to cozy up to them. Maybe they would be big givers to the church. The person in filthy, worn clothes would not provide any benefit by just looking at their outward appearance. What money would they have? What could they give us in return by showing them favor? By our outward appearance, we would say nothing. But we would be wrong, very wrong. Because how can any of us know by looking at the outward appearance and just seeing what a person wears, what's going on inside of their heart? How could we tell, can you tell by just the description that James gives in this three verses here, two through four, which one of those, if either of them, were a follower of Christ? No, you can't, because we don't know the heart of the person. We can't tell from one or the other. Because we see that partiality is based, and we see it all the time in our world even today. Christians are being discriminated just because they're Christians all over the world. Killed, tortured, thrown in jail just because they serve the living God. But that's not even it. That's not even all of it. We see it even in our country even now. Discrimination still exists in the United States. We see this that people who are just a different skin color have more melanin than another person is discriminated against. We think that's all in the past, but no, it continues on today. We make assumptions of people based on, on, the, on all different kinds of things. Their clothing, their accent, their culture, the neighborhood they live in, whether they live on the street or in a house. All kinds of things. And if we follow James's model here, even today, we, we see that the rich, they're invited to the best parties. They get the best seats at sporting events and concerts and restaurants. They can afford the best health care, and they can afford to go to the best colleges. And if you're a celebrity, you read stories of this all the time, where if a celebrity shows up at a restaurant or an event, they get free tickets and they get sat right down in the front in the best seats. Why? Because we are trying to get something for them based on what we see and perceive about them. Even a person's autographs brings us value, so we want to be close to them, thinking that if they even look in our direction, we are their friend. 
We couldn't be more wrong. Whereas when we look on the other end of it, the poor, the homeless, they have difficulty even getting to any college. They have difficulty finding health care. They have difficulty getting any jobs at all. Their families suffer. And we know that poverty it can be generational, and it is difficult to climb out of. But as James is providing one example of a sin of partiality, so am I, really. Not all poor people have these difficulties, and not all rich people live glorious lives. We think they do, but if you were to ask a rich person if they're happy because of their money, most of the time they will tell you no. Money does not buy happiness, like we say. Money can bring us more problems, because then you worry about losing the money that you, that you have. So just because we perceive someone by their outward appearance based on what they look like does not mean anything to the Lord. But I want to say this, that it is important for us to know that in this passage that James is not talking about general society, where I was. It's actually harder. Because in verse 2, he is specifically talking about a comparison between the attention that a, pers a person of, of wealth gets in an assembly of Christian believers. We're talking about a church. We're talking about anywhere where Christians gather together, where we are assembled, where you go to the grocery store, to Walmart, anywhere. You carry your biases with you. It's any place a Christian gathers together. And by showing biases in our assemblies, we put ourselves in a seat of judgment. This should be reserved for God alone. As James puts it in verse 4, it shows a mind filled with evil thoughts. Evil thoughts meaning we are making judgments on outward appearances based just on what they wear. Possibly condemning people in our minds. Making judgments without knowing the hearts of a person and the character of a person. We are not qualified to make these kind of judgments because we're not God. We cannot see into a person's heart like God can. In the passage that Sherry read in 1 Samuel 16, we see that Samuel is tasked by God to anoint the successor to Saul as the new king of Israel. We know that to be David, if we were to continue reading on in that passage. Who was David? David was the youngest of Jesse's sons, just a poor shepherd. There was nothing special about him whatsoever. And what, does, what is it that we see here in, in verse 7 of our passage that Sherry read that tips us off to what our God is like? He says this, he says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. When he's talking about Eliab. But the Lord, he says, but excuse me, let me back up. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It is not the age of a person or their physical presence or their economic status, or where they are in the social world 
It's not what the Lord looks at. He could care less about any of those things because those are all on the outside of a person. God looks at the heart. Have you ever dressed an animal? Have you ever cleaned a fish? Have you ever witnessed someone having an operation? If you have, you will know that the inside of an animal, the inside of a fish, and the inside of a person all look the same. And that's where God looks. And not just in the guts of us, but in our hearts, in our character. He looks inside. He knows our very emotions, our nature, who we are. And that's what he's interested in. As believers, because of the cross of Christ, our insides have been made pure. It is made white as snow. It is clean. An example I want to share with you is in Matthew 8, 1 through 3, the story of Jesus healing a leper. And it says this, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. What really happened in these short verses here? What really happened? Keep in mind that lepers were the dirge of society. Leviticus 13 describes leprosy and provides the law for what a leper was to do. A leper would, people would see a leper walking and the leper would cover their face and they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. And the people would run away. And the leper could not live in society. They had to live outside of town in their own colony. Even their family and friends could have nothing to do with them. Imagine the sad existence this is. What seat in their assembly would the leper get? None. But what does Jesus do? Here is Jesus, the Holy Son of God, pure and completely without stain, without a spot, no sin in him, and he comes upon a leper. He is the author of the law. He knows exactly what it says. He knows that they know that if he touches them, that they think he will become unclean. He would be violating his own law. But what does he do? He touches him. Understand the significance of what he did. The one who was clean, the Holy Son of God, the propitiation of our sins, the one who satisfied the wrath of his Father for us so we wouldn't have to, touched, laid his hand. He didn't have to. He could have just said, you're clean, and he would have been clean. But he was making a point. I do not hold this man in disregard. He is going to be my child. And I touch him as I would touch anyone. And he was healed. That is the God we serve. That is the God who loves us. That while we were in our trespasses, he became sin for us. Out of his love for his Father and his Father's will and for his Father's glory, 
he became love for us. Obedient even to touch an unclean leper. Should we not do the same to others who walk into our assemblies? We are his representatives wherever we go. And not just in these walls. Because we're only in these walls for a short period of time. But we are his representatives wherever we go. Wherever we spend most of our time together. We must remove this evil from our churches and in our lives. Dean Ortland says this in his book, Gentle and Lowly, and get used to this book because we have a lot of free copies of it. We're going to be going over this in Sunday school shortly. And I can tell you this is a great book. And he says this. He says this in page 27 of this book. And this book is about the heart of Christ. He says this, Time and again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. It is, excuse me, it is by his enemy's testimony he is the friend of sinners. Jesus had no bias in him. He could have cared less where you came from. He loved you. He called you. He called me. I can tell you that I was not a clean person. I was as leprous as that man was, and yet he touched my life and he changed me. He showed no bias to who I am. The fact that I'm left-handed and bald and fat, he could have cared less. He loved me. He looked inside of me and he said, there is more to you than what you look at in the mirror. Zane talked about looking in the mirror last week and forgetting about what you look like when you leave. And I talked to you about that last week as well. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Jesus sees the child of God, someone he gave his life for. Why is it when we look away from the mirror, we forget that truth? Why can we not carry that truth out into the world and see other people who are just as worthy as we are to receive God's love? Jesus wants us to be equal opportunity lovers of people. Showing partiality or discrimination towards others can be blatant or it can be subtle. Either way, it is something that God does not tolerate or want his people to be a part of. We are equal in the eyes of God based on our sin. None of us can stand before God as more righteous or favored over another. Romans 3, 10 through 12, we read this a lot, but we need to remember it all the time. It makes this point clear. It says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands there was no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I know you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, Scott, are you going to bring the good news to us this morning? I'm telling you, this is good news. All of us are sinners. All of us here this morning are here because of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Now I know that 
at some point here, each of us at some point or another has shown favoritism or bias to another person just based on a man-made perception. We don't want to admit to that, but we know that we're guilty. It is our partiality and bias based on our past experience. Does that, does that cloud our judgment of other people? And how can we keep ourselves from this sin of partiality? Do we not get to make that choice? As we continue in our passage, starting in verse 5, we'll notice that it is Jesus who chooses and not us. In this section, this is the section where James is going to tell us that we need to put this to death. Starting in verse 5, it says, Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sorry, okay, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the, the whole law but fails at one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That's a lot. But God, in his magnificent sovereignty, is the one who chooses a person's place in life. It's not us. We have trouble figuring out what clothes we're going to wear when we come to church, or what restaurant we're going to have lunch in when we get done, let alone being able to choose a person's eternal destination. That is not for us to do. In verse 5, James says, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to gain the inheritance of the kingdom and all of the spoils of the inheritance that goes with that. And showing partiality against the poor is treating them shamefully and removing them from the position that the Lord of glory Jesus Christ himself chose for them. These Jewish Christians that, Jesus, or that James is talking about are poor. And the rich were regularly taking them to court for their debts to make them pay. That seems silly. Why would you send somebody who owes you money to jail to pay you back when they can't work while they're in jail? I don't know. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. It was the rich who were not heeding God's commands in his law. They had all they needed. Why would they have to submit to God? But let's keep in mind that not all poor people were following Jesus and not every rich person was against Christ or showing discrimination to the poor. James uses this as an example for us. It is only God who is qualified to sit in the seat of judgment because, as we've seen, he is the only one who knows the hearts of people. We have no right to judge the rich. The law that James is pointing to, the royal law, was given by Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, 
when he asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus wants us to be equal opportunity lovers of people. This is the royal law, a law given by a king. And this king is Jesus, the head of everything, the author and perfecter of our faith. The law that is unified in its beauty to show us the full will of God. J.A. Motyer says this. He describes these laws like a single sheet of glass. To break one law is like breaking one edge of the sheet, causing all of it to shatter. These two laws that Jesus gave hold all of the law and the prophets, and they cannot be separated. Thus, to break one breaks all like a sheet of glass. The law of God consists of three main parts. There's the ceremonial law, there's the civil law, and there's the moral law. The ceremonial law and the civil law were the laws that Jesus took to the cross. Those are the ones that have been fulfilled by him. Those are the ones that we are not held to any longer. But we are still under the moral law, the laws regarding loving God and loving others, which is why James uses this example of murder and adultery, because those are two major laws. They deal with the sanctity of marriage and of life, which only the Lord can rightly give or take away. And of course, they come from the Ten Commandments. So when I say we are obligated to fulfill the moral law, the Ten Commandments, as Jesus himself, as we read in Matthew, said these ten laws were broken into two. To love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law, decreed by King Jesus and sealed by his Holy Spirit, taken from Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.8. Now, I know that some of us here may have felt the slap in the face of bias or discrimination based on our looks or our appearance, or Dan, maybe even you, having been in a wheelchair. I'm sure you have probably faced some discrimination and difficulties in your life based on that. You have maybe felt the pain and the shame that it brings. The shame you may feel that is not based on anything that you have done or even deserve. But you are the undeserved beneficiary of someone else's sin. But I say, don't let this drive your future. Let's not be victims, <clears throat> even though we've been wronged. God wants us to be overcomers, not victims. So how is it that we overcome being discriminated against? Well, one is to sing our praises to the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he is not the one who wronged us. He saved us. He himself was severely discriminated against. Two is to look at the light of Christ. Christ is the light. He is the, he is the light in the darkness. He is the light of the world. 
and darkness could not overcome him. The other one I would say is do not repeat the same discrimination or bias shown to you by someone that has done it to you. Instead, open the door for others to find their hope and forgiveness in Jesus. Open the door and invite people in. If you are one who has been shown discrimination or bias, then if you are one who has performed this sin, then we need to confess and throw ourselves on the mercy of God when we will find forgiveness and a fresh start. Repent from the sin and turn to Christ. Then apologize to anyone maybe you have sinned against in this way. What does it mean to throw ourselves on the mercy of God? Don't we deserve judgment instead? Shouldn't we, who have not loved others as we love ourselves, hang our heads in shame and anguish? Fortunately, we have a God and a Savior in Jesus who has shown us the answer to these questions. No, we should, but that's not what he gives us. Jesus wants us to be equal opportunity lovers of people. In our fourth section, as we look to verses 12 through 13, our response is to let mercy be our guide. To let mercy be our guide. Starting in verse 12, James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. It is the word so in verse 12 that tells us that this is what James commands us to do. We are to act instead, mercy to others as God has been merciful to us. And mercy can be defined as showing kindness or goodwill towards those who are in the miserable and afflicted states of their lives. And who are the miserable and afflicted? Well, aren't we all miserable and afflicted in our own sins before Christ? Is it not Jesus who gave us his life as a ransom so that we would not be left in our miserable state of sin and affliction? Is it not Jesus who gives us hope for something greater than what we experience here on earth? There is no pain or anguish or discrimination or bias by which his love cannot overcome. Where each of us is not judged on how we look or the size of our bank account or the clothes we wear, or the degree behind our name, or the people we know, or the job we have. Christ alone is the answer. He has shown us mercy. He has shown us love, and we deserved judgment. And this is the great hope that we have. And let us sing it out on the mountaintops. Because of what Jesus has done for us, is it too much for him to ask, that we show this same mercy to, and love to others. Why is it so difficult for us to do this? We are called like Jesus to lean into the awkward. We are to lean into each other because we're all awkward. We're weird. Christians are weird. I'm weird. So are you. 
And I mean that with all due love and respect. <laughs> and together, we lean into Christ and His mercy. It's all we have. We need to spend time in His Word, praying for others without ceasing, seeing them as lost sinners who need mercy, who need the grace and forgiveness of Jesus just like we do. Wherever you go, not just in these walls. Because again, Jesus wants us to be lovers of people. As James tells us in verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment every time, all the time. It is that important. It is the word, it is the word for is what helps us see the importance of what he is talking about. It gives weight to the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment. And when we start showing mercy to others, judgment just fades off into the darkness. It'll be easier for us to get through it. I just want you to know, I'm not talking about wokeness. I'm talking about Christ-likeness. This is who Jesus is. This is who he has called us to be. And we as the church are unified whole. And as individual saints, we are called to be different than the world. We are called to be representatives of our King, our Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. He is not just Lord over you. He is Lord over glory. How much higher could our Lord be? He can't be any higher. Let me just answer that for you. Our faith should not reflect the values of the world, but it must reflect the will of our God. We are called to be a city on the hill. We are called to keep our lamps lit and to make sure our lamps are always full of oil. We are called to be about the business and mission of Christ, to make disciples, to make Jesus' name non-ignorable. This cannot happen if we hold biases or prejudices or show discrimination to others. Our Lord was impartial to us, so we cannot be to others either. Let's be champions of impartiality and to not have anything to do with discrimination of other people. Let the doors of all of our assemblies, wherever we are, our churches be wide open to all sinners who come and hope to find Christ. They may not even know why they're here, but it is our job to show them the seat where they can sit, the best seat, and hear the message of the gospel and have their life changed for eternity. We do not have the answers, but we know that Jesus does. And we need to show people, all people, everywhere, who Christ is by being different than what we see the world being. We are about loving God and loving others as he loved us. Do not forget what you look like in the mirror. You are a child of the king. We should want to bring other people to the mirror and see the same thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, God, for the power of your word. Lord, I, I, I praise you and thank you for this message. Not always easy to hear, but Lord, I know that it is your will.
that we see people as you see people, to love them as you love them, to not love them with partiality and bias because you did not show that to us. You showed us who you are by showing everyone who the, what the cross is and where the power of the gospel is, that all of our sins of all people were taken there, past, present, and future. Help us, Lord. Help us to be people of love who do not hold biases, who do not show discrimination, but show people the gospel. Thank you, Lord. And we praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.